This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, I am talking to you from my uh, uh, secluded bunker in Northwest Washington, um, where I have spent a really remarkable amount of time talking to quadrupeds because I'm here alone. Um, this podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to... Uh, Cure your lumbago and everything else that you could possibly want from life. Um, and so, oh, and today's episode is brought to you by Ernest. More about them in a little bit. So, um, as I mentioned at the with the Kevin Williamson podcast the other day, um, we are basically now running through the list of people that we've been meaning to have on for a very long time but haven't yet for one reason or another. Uh, some of them are in prison. Um, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, doing things out of the country that make it difficult for them to come back in. And some of them just have schedule conflicts. But one of them that we've wanted to have on for a very long time, and really only the second U.S. senator ever to be on this podcast, is uh, Shoshana Weissman of R Street. She's a fellow there and she runs their digital media stuff. She is not, in fact, a U.S. senator. I want to be very clear about this. Um, and this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for us because Shoshana is one of these people who sort of like in a William Gibson novel, like Neuromancer kind of thing, has this whole other life on the interwebs. And it's a very strange life. And... Um, she goes by the Twitter handle Senator Shoshana, and every now and then when she says something, someone who thinks she's actually a U.S. senator will get angry with her and say, well, isn't this your job? Why don't you pass this law? And that kind of thing, which is always very amusing. Um, and she's always trying to solicit bribes from people, saying that she'll do whatever they want for $20,000. So there's gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to try and stop her every now and then to explain some of these things as we go. But I just wanted people to know in advance that this is this isn't like a podcast with George Will. And she also just for listeners, we are trying to avoid uh, the kind of feedback we got when we had Lachlan um, and Swin on here about a month ago for all the cursing. So we are going to bleep or otherwise boulderize all mentions of sexual congress, uh, and no matter what the vernacular. And all mentions of uh, sexual male organs, even if they are acceptable Scrabble terms. But you should be able to figure it all out from context. Uh, if, if it turns out that there are many people who are offended by this, 
maybe we will start offering for dispatch members a director's cut of our podcasts, which do not have such outrageous censorship. Um, so with that said, um, uh, Shoshana, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks for having me. And also, I do love Ben Sass and George Will. So you've already mentioned some of my favorites. Fair enough. And so um, I believe we will have to check. Uh, but as an actual full-blown guest, I believe you were the youngest remnant guest in remnant history. Oh, cool. Uh, I, I, I'm, just, I'm saying that off the top of my head. So I will have to uh, investigate that. But um not counting like cameos from interns who get to do an appearance kind of thing, but an actual full-blown guest. So there's that for you. And you're like, what, like 14? I mean, you don't have to tell me. A lady doesn't tell her age. That's fine. But like, you're still a 20-something? Yes? Yeah, no? I'm 27. I look okay. 12, though. Mm-hmm. There is that. Um, so uh, where shall we begin? Um, why don't we start with your, with your passion? Uh, which is quirky, weird regulatory reform stuff and occupational licensing and whatnot. Um, uh, how did you get into all of that? Yeah, so it's a, it, it's a really weird path. I mean, everything with me has a story, um, and usually it's really bizarre. But um, I've been a Federalist Society member since I was 16, as one does. Um, and when I moved to D.C. for college, the Fed Sox here, they have all their events here um, and their big conferences here. So when I was 19, I was at uh, the Federalist Society Lawyer Conference, which I had only stopped by the previous year. And I, I genuinely went to learn more about the Constitution. I had taken a couple of con law classes in college and I didn't really get it. I didn't get a binding philosophy. And then I met Randy Barnett, who's a professor at Georgetown, and he gave the speech about unenumerated rights and judicial engagement, and I was sold. But um, among the many rights that aren't written down in the Constitution or unenumerated rights is economic liberty, the right to earn a living. Um, so that's one of those rights that really hooked me. And um, shortly thereafter, I met Clark Neely, who's now at Cato. He used to be at the Institute for Justice. And he told me the story of Sandy Meadows. Um, people who follow me on Twitter would probably know, but basically um, there's an elderly widow in Louisiana who had never had to make a living for herself before. It was her first time and she knew how to arrange flowers, but she couldn't pass the Louisiana floristry test um, because they have a regulation that anyone who arranges flowers in the state must be licensed by the state. So she tried to pass. She couldn't pass because the pass rate was lower than the bar exam pass rate there. Um, but she went to work for a grocery any anyway. Her clients loved her. She was doing great. Um, and then the state said, you have to fire her or we're going to shut you down. So they had to fire her. And um, IJ helped her out. The Institute for Justice helped her out quite a bit. But um, when she died, she was in poverty because government wouldn't let an elderly widow doing something completely innocent earn a living. And I've thought about that story almost every day for a long time, and it feels really unjust. Um, that was what got me into all of this. Um, but it's basically, I want to live in an America where that doesn't happen, where we don't tell elderly widows that they can't make a living, and we don't stop people from working for ridiculous reasons. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm okay with telling elderly widows they can't be heart transplant surgeons. Right. Um, if they... Don't pass the requisite test. But, like, the idea that somehow we're putting lives in danger by keeping a nice old lady from being able to arrange flowers without a piece of paper 
is grotesque, right? I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, it's funny. There is this, I mean, you probably know who Jacob Majed is or Maged, that people pronounce his name differently. I'm not sure. So this is one of the foundational stories of conservative right-wing anti-New Dealism. I'd say once every four years, George Will writes about him. I've been writing about him once every few years. Um, during the New Deal under the Blue Eagle and the NRA, there are these codes for everything, but among them were codes for dry cleaners. And there was a guy named, again, I could be mispronouncing his name, Magid Majed, um, Hungarian immigrant guy, I believe, who had a bad location and for his dry cleaning shop or his cleaning shop. And so he charged 25 cents to uh, press a suit rather than the federal government established price of 30 cents because he had to be cheaper than the competition because he was in a bad location and you needed to sort of entice someone to walk an extra block to go to his store. And the federal government tried to put him in jail for doing this. And this became one of the and he had a big it went all the way to court. Uh, the judge ultimately, I think he spent some time in jail, on, you know, before he got bail or something like that. But the judge ultimately let him off with a warning. But it was a it was one of these sort of, um, you know, martyr stories, sort of like the one you're telling about the lady with the flowers. Um, and it is it's it's interesting to me that this kind of thing rightly outrages conservatives when we talk about it, when the federal government does it, the current coronavirus stuff notwithstanding. Um, but it, it's really hard to persuade people it's bad when state governments do it too. Um, and, you know, so why don't you talk a little bit about like the the crap storm of various, I mean, the one that IJ always used to tout was the, uh, and IJ does fantastic work, Um uh, they always use it to tout hair braiders, right? I mean, that's is that still a big problem? Why don't you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, hair braiders are still a big fight, and um, and you're you're totally right about the state difference. It's interesting, and I think a couple of dynamics play into why. First, it's federalism, and federalism is good. I'm all for federalism. I like it. I'm a big James Madison nerd. The more federalism, the better. But that doesn't mean that state governments can't be abusive and do unconstitutional things. And um. IJ promotes judicial engagement, and I know that not all conservatives agree with it. I just genuinely okay. think it's the right philosophy. Why don't we take a second to explain what judicial engagement is? Right. So basically, um, right now in court, um, you have something called the rational basis test when you're dealing with um, most rights that aren't enumerated in the Constitution with a few exceptions. Um, so when, when those, when basically when those cases come to court dealing with those rights, the rational basis test lets the government lie. They're like, oh, well, is there a possible reason you could have maybe enacted that bill, which is how you got, uh, courts in Louisiana to uphold the florist license because they said, oh, well, you know, the government says there could be infected dirt. And what if like someone falls on a sharp flower stem and all that stuff was used to uphold it. And that stuff holds up in court, but it shouldn't. All rights should be treated the same. And under the theory of judicial engagement, the authority goes back to the Ninth Amendment and the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause. 
all that basically means is that rights that aren't written down deserve protection with rights that are written down. A lot of people know know the whole story that our founders were like, oh, I'm not sure we should write down our rights because they'll think we won't have other ones. That right. story is basically what this gets to. And that's and what so the 9th and 10th Amendment are about, court. right? It's The 9th and 10th Amendment are basically right. like, just because it's not listed here, you still have a right to own a dog or to part your hair on whichever side of your head you want, right? I mean, Exactly. Um, so the burden of proof still should be on government to prove that the thing it's doing, it, it, it's, it's actually doing for the right reason for health or safety or whatever it is for real government interest. So you have a lot of courts upholding this. And a lot of people who misguidedly think that states can YOLO, they can do whatever they want. And, um, and that all works out, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle. And another piece is just localism. You have corrupt local uh, groups. Like in Louisiana, I kid you not, there's a floristry lobby. They're very anti getting rid of the florist license. Cosmetologists are also like this wild lobby that if you try to get rid of their licenses, they will fight you. And um, they're yeah, really they attack mean. you on Twitter all the time. Yeah. Cosmetologists, they, they, which is amusing to me. They tell me my hair is ugly and I'm like, I don't <laughs> care. Like I'm not stopping you from doing stuff. Just don't like Overregulate me. They even um, in Arizona, when they finally were able to repeal the law that um, you can't blow dry hair without a license, they're like, "Oh, well, do you want immigrants blow drying your hair?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. <laughs> like that sounds nice. Like we'll get them a job. That's great." Um, and they're, you know, they made up all these horribles that could happen. Um, so you have all these different kinds of lobbies for every licensed industry there is, with a couple of exceptions um, that want these laws to stay in place. And they're not Democrats. They're Republicans and Democrats, but oftentimes they're, um, they're guilds before yeah. anything, which is kind of why you have um, localism as a problem with this. Not that we should stop local places doing from what they need to do, but, um, but that's one thing to take into account with this. Yeah, so I, I really struggle with this um, because, you know, I mean, as you know, what has two thumbs and loves federalism? This guy. Um, and Shoshana can see me pointing my thumbs at myself. Um, and at the same time, so, like, my view has always been if local governments want to do stupid things – um, so long as you're not like like you can't have slavery, you can't have Jim Crow. There's you know there's some settled issues at a, at a national level, um, but if you want to ban Walmart or whatever, you know I think it's dumb. I'm against it, but I would rather have people to make the freedom to make stupid decisions at a very local level than have the federal government have the freedom to make one size fits all stupid decisions. And so you have to have a certain amount of tolerance for dumbness um, or misguidedness or just simply smart mistakes. You know, some things seem like they would make a lot of sense and then they turn out not to. Like um, I was listening to, um, oh, one of the top nudge theorists guys um, who was really involved in, in Britain. And he said, look, one of the things you have when you start doing some of this stuff is you have to accept the idea that, like at least half of your really good ideas will turn out to fail. And so anyway, I, I'm, I'm all open to the idea of local communities doing things I personally do not like. But at the same time, like uh, it drives me crazy that, that you can tell non-high school graduate African-American women who are trying to like feed their families 
that they can't apply the one skill that they can find a market for, which is like this hair braiding stuff, um, without doing like 2000 hours of, of occupational licensing. And I hate the sort of progressive temptation I have to say, well, this is different because I don't like what they're doing. So I think the federal government should come in and get rid of that stuff. Um, and so I'm always, even what I, mean, I know you're making a constitutional argument, it still bothers me. I, I, there's just a real tension there for me personally, and I, it almost I always have to go case by case to reconcile it. That makes sense. I, I sympathize, and there's a lot of issues where I think that that tension kind of pulls us a little bit. Um, for me personally, I just think it's the role of the courts to protect all rights in the same exact way, um, and just to overturn things that aren't constitutional. To say no, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to, especially if it's about protecting guilds rather than protecting health or safety. Um, so I, I definitely sympathize, though, um, and I don't want the federal government to step in, with very few exceptions. Um, last year, I worked with Senator Cotton's office on getting this bill that made it into the NDAA, and it basically funds uh, states who want to create compacts for military spouses, um, because military spouses move constantly, um, and their their licenses generally don't transfer. And while some states are changing this and making it a little bit easier for them, I, I'm very okay with, hey, here's some money to do that thing if you weren't able to before because of budgetary restraints. Yeah. But um, far from that, there's not as much role for the federal government. There, there's a couple, but not much. Um, and, and then even on the state level with experimentation, part of the problem is that with any regulation, you usually don't have a sunset. And if you do have a sunset, um, some of them are, are very good, but in, in too many cases, they're just auto-renew. So I think that if you have effective sunsets looking at models that have worked, like, hey, let's try this regulation to solve this problem. I have no problem with that, but it's just that these stay forever, um, which is why you have these really old licenses and people still justifying, you know, hair braiding licenses. Um, still, there's even fortune teller licenses. Um, it's, it gets really silly, but I think that with sunsets or even just trying out different forms, maybe health inspections are the way to go or just mandatory registration. There's lower barriers too. What is the test like for a fortune teller license? Like what, 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 what do they ask you? So to my knowledge, there's not a formal test. You just have to have like a character reference and um, fill out a form and pay some money, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> wouldn't sure, be sure, without sure. the money. But um, but fortune tellers licenses exist, to my knowledge, in a couple of localities in Maryland, California, and I want to say Massachusetts. And those are just the ones I found. I know there's more. <laughs> so, I mean, so that's one of these things where I go back and forth about, right? Because like you could see how... I could actually conjure up a scenario where, even though I think fortune telling is garbage, um, like the history, it would be, it'd just be kind of curious to do the history of it. Like if there were sort of Irish travelers or gypsies or whoever who were in, you know, it was a long, if there was a long history of con people, con men or con women, and there is, it's highly associated with like fortune telling where they, they bilk these little old ladies out of, you know, their bank, their life savings, um, like creating some barrier to entry or at least some database of the people who are doing this. I could see being some local alderman and thinking that, Hey, maybe this is, we can't, we can't ban fortune telling, but at least let's regulate it. Um, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I just think it's, you could imagine, cause there is, if you could try to keep the, the, the con, artists out of the trade there's a certain advantage to 
um, uh, doing that. Anyway, I don't know. I think that's interesting. See, one of the things I like, and uh, as I wrote about in my book, um, that I like you use the word guild because one of the things that sort of fascinates me about all of this stuff is the way um, I think guilds are natural. They're part of human nature. Uh, it goes to like with the stuff like Jonathan, with, with John Tooby calls the coalition instinct. People, and it, it goes to what the founders talk about, which is faction, right? And, and what Adam Smith talks about in the Wealth of Nations about how whenever two people of the same business meet in a pub or wherever, they will um, quickly conspire against the public trust. There's nothing wrong with guilds per se. The problem with guilds comes in when they use state power to enforce their rules, right? Um, oh, absolutely. So like you, like, where do you come, where do you come down on public sector unions? You know, it's funny. It's not an issue I've been diving into as much. My dad's actually in the teacher union. Um, and he, he and I have talked a lot about problems with it, um, that it doesn't protect him where he feels um, it, it, it ought to, and it protects people where he thinks that it shouldn't be protecting people. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I go back and forth on them. I just don't always think that they're successful. I also don't think that it should be mandatory, that they should be allowed to say, in order to work in this profession, you have to be part of the union. Um, which, But I, I sympathize with the instinct mm -hmm. that, that said. There's also been evidence that as unions are declining, licensing is increasing. Right. So it's funny you mention that because it really does go to that same instinct and the exact what you're thinking. Oh, so there was this one thing. I, I don't think we've ever talked about it. Um... You know, so when I was working on um, Suicide in the West, you know, one of the, and I talk about this in speeches all the time, one of the things that I get, I get fascinated by is this guild mentality or this guild instinct and the recurrence of guilds over time. And so one of the questions I always like to ask is, what would somebody from 500 or 10,000 years ago, if they came here today, if they were transported in time, and they looked around um, contemporary society, we all know what they would be surprised by. You know, horseless carriages, flying machines, all that kind of stuff. Um, alas, they would not see jetpacks because we don't have our jetpacks yet. But um, uh, the interesting question is, what wouldn't they be surprised by, right? What would be utterly familiar to them? And like, I mean, the, one of the more obvious examples would be like... Um, uh, a mother nursing a baby, right? I mean, that's like a universal image going back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and you could probably come up, you know, with, you know, people holding hands. I mean, hundreds of things when you start to think about it. Um, but one of the things at least a sophisticated person would recognize is uh, guilds, because guilds are one of the oldest institutions in human existence. And, um, and back in, you know, under Hammurabi or in the Middle Ages, you know, guilds were the powers that be. And, um, and I, I think that this is one of these things, one of the, so like one of my favorite examples of, of, of manifestations of modern day guilds isn't just necessarily unions or teachers unions, but Mexican teachers unions. There are in some States in Mexico, you have teachers unions where the job is heritable. So like if you taught chemistry, you leave your job to your child, whether or not they know chemistry. And, and um, 
that would be utterly recognizable to someone from the Middle Ages, right? You know, your father was a Mason, so you get to be a Mason. And, you know, a lot of our last names actually come from our parental membership in some guild or something, you know, what our what our profession was. And then you think about the castes in India and all of that kind of stuff. And so, like, anyway, the reason I'm rambling about this is because I haven't had much sleep and, um, um, you know, I've been chew- chewing all sorts of uh, stimulants. Um, but, uh, I think this is one of these sort of, one of the things, how to put this, one of the things that just drives me crazy is that people who defend a lot of these institutions, they claim the mantle of being on the force of modernity and progress when in fact they're defending institutions that are not only not modern, they're literally ancient. Right. No, that's a great point. I never thought of it like that, but you're right. This isn't a new thing and it hasn't been done helpfully or in a way that's improving society with with relatively few exceptions. Um, And, and, you know, in every industry, they'll tell you that people will die if you don't license them. So I have people who are dietitians who will say, yeah, it's ridiculous. Cosmetologists are licensed. You know, you should be able to cut anyone's hair and dye hair. I I have rainbow hair and I dye my own hair. So I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, well, what about giving? Sorry. Scab. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have um, I, and but uh, in a lot of states, you also can't give basic nutritional advice without a license. Like your your trainer at your gym can't tell you, oh, you should have more protein. What are you eating now? Let me see how I can adjust it a little bit. Um, that would be illegal in a bunch of states if they're paying you. But so dietitians are like, oh, but you know, you can't change that. You can change every other industry except <laughs> mine, and you get that all the time. And I try to pit them against each other, not to be mean. I mean, maybe a little to be mean, but also to say, look, that guy's making the same arguments as you. Neither of you had any evidence to support your opinion. Maybe like we can come to the table and talk and figure things out a little bit more. Um, and it, it will change some minds. There's some people who, who come come out getting it. Other people are like, oh, how could you compare me to that industry? They're nowhere near as professional as I am. It's like this badge of being professional and being elite. And it's like, no, people go to you because you do good work or you don't. Um, And that's how they should be judged. But instead they go back to this old guild mentality, like you're saying, like, oh, well, I'm and my father before me was this. And we're protecting people. Um, So why don't we come at this from the other direction? What professions, just to see, you know, we're going to kick the tires and see how much of a crazy anarcho-capitalist randy and you really are pretending to be so reasonable what professions do you think should be allowed to have licenses well uh to go off uh the deep end to start with um ayn rand apparently didn't like the term randy and she preferred objectivist uh-huh. um that was a personal preference of hers so I'm, I'm starting off pretty bad here but um but further than that usually my test are you is- are you an objectivist no, no, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like some of her stuff. I don't like other of it, but um, but I, I'm obsessive generally enough to know things like that. Yeah. No, that's fair. No, that, I mean, uh, <laughs> there, there, there is no appeal to uh, esoteric wonkery that is not permitted on this podcast. So that's that's perfect. All fine. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, so g- generally, my test for licensing is that there has to be evidence of harm. If you don't license this, there's there's definitely harm occurring, and licensing is the best way to go about it. 
So the first thing you need is evidence of harm. And even though doctors are licensed everywhere, you still see the occasional unlicensed like plastic surgery clinic um, that happened recently in Florida and people were getting really sick, they were dying. Um, so that should have been taken care of. And that's not the only reason, but among many reasons I'm okay licensing doctors because real harm occurs when they're not licensed. But um, with cosmetologists, there's actually rampant like health infections and nail infections, stuff like that occurring in salons. And they're all licensed, all yeah. of them. So it's not solving the problem. In that case, the better solution would probably be more health inspections rather than this extra licensing, which they claim is necessary. So it always has to be a good means ends fit. And there's also that middle ground, you know, maybe we don't want florist license, but what about plumbers and electricians? I'm not closed off there because there's a potential for harm. But evidence shows that it might not be necessary to have mandatory licensing. Um, I think it was a Mercatus study that had showed that in states that licensed um, electricians, um, there were there was actually more harm occurring because prices were higher and people didn't want to have to pay it. So they would try to be their own electrician and harm themselves. Mm -hmm. So where electricians weren't licensed, they were cheaper and more people would go out and get the expert. So I think that even in cases where you might expect something should be licensed for reasonable reasons, you really always have to go back to evidence and then, again, make sure the means and fit is there. Um, but then, you know, usually pre people bring up lawyers. Um, I'm kind of a believer that the barrier should be a lot lower. Access to justice is wild for a lot of people. Um, you know, people think that you always get a lawyer uh, in every scenario. And one, that lawyer is not always going to be good if it's government provided and worn out and not even criticizing government. Just the poor guy is trying to defend all these people and barely has any time to review the cases. That That's a failure of government, but not of that guy. He's doing his best. Um, and in certain cases where you won't have a lawyer in certain trials, like it would be better maybe for your friend who has studied law to step in and help you rather than for you to be on your own. Um, and I know both actually the American Bar Association and the state of Utah have done some studies on this kind of thinking of where there's room for reform. Um, though in more advanced fields, I think that it's a little bit narrower how you get to reform, like letting nurses do everything they're qualified to do and not always having to practice under doctors, things like that. So for me, it's just it, it, there has to be evidence of harm occurring um, without regulation and then showing that the that the means ends fit is there for regulation and then seeing how it works out, if it's working, if it's making things better or worse. So it's, it's really a case of evidence because I have no problem gov with government protecting health or safety when it's actually doing those things. But in so many times, health and safety is just a lie for like, oh, YOLO, we just kind of want to protect our, our boys. So let's just do that. Right. And also, I mean, there's, I mean, I, I do not live in the weeds of this stuff, but there's, so maybe I'm using the wrong terminology, but there's a difference between licensing and accreditation, right? Or whatever right. the right word is. Um, the, I have no problem with there being independent of state authority organizations that provide some good housekeeping seal of approval to somebody. This person has passed this test or this person meets our standards, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then some firm can hang a framed thing of their diploma, or their certificate on the wall, but that shouldn't be, but that's different than the state saying, unless you have that piece of paper, you cannot do this work, right? I mean, there's one thing to oh, sort of yeah. brag brag um, about I how you went to Harvard school. Medical School, and it's another thing to say, you know, 
um, or maybe Harvard Medical School is the wrong example, but, you know, Harvard uh, Flower Arranging School, um, you know, or the Sorbonne or whatever it is, right? You know, we don't say that people, unless you went to the best cooking school in the world, you can't cook. We just say that if you did go to the best cooking school in the world, maybe you can charge more for your 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 work, you know, and that's an important distinction out there that I think the market would fill in a lot of that really, really quickly. Absolutely. Um, and I, I love schools like that. I love trade schools. You know, whatever you want to do to get your education is great. Um, I'm a big at-home learner, so like for fun, um, I recently read uh, Randy Barnett's Contracts Law Casebook while at the gym, and that's just me doing that for fun to learn about contract law. Like I'm going to get you person. the best doctor, Shoshana. Uh, <laughs> it's on. pretty bad. Um, but, you know, whatever way people learn, I'm very open to. And I think that a lot of these trade schools provide a much better value than college in a lot of cases. Um so I'm all for that, but it's funny because I end up being pitted against them, especially with cosmetology. Schools are known for being very abusive, um, you know, causing people to pay all this money and, and they end up in debt. It, it's really awful. But um, but basically, I think learning is awesome. Um, it's just that government shouldn't say you must learn this one particular way. That's, that's the other thing, too. Um, there's a philosophy of regulation that I don't think people understand, that when your regulation says X, X is the only legal way to get from point A to B. Um, you have to do these things to get this license. It doesn't matter how qualified you are in any other way. If you've been to um, foreign schools or if you've had training, you know, even even as you were saying with parents, if your parent um, uh, was a plumber and you learned on the job your whole life, that doesn't always mean anything. So we, we forget that it uh, that licensing just creates this one narrow path and hurts everyone who's outside of that path. And sometimes that's necessary, like with doctors. I'm very sympathetic there. But when it gets to, to other professions, you really start to think this person has been cutting hair with their parents since they were a baby. And now they can't do it professionally and they have to pay all this money. There's so much harm that's created by these really narrow regulatory pathways. And you can say, oh, well, then they should add in these pathways and these pathways. But you're always going you're never going to be able to make it perfect. Um and that's just how regulations work. People think of it as like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this regulation happened and everyone would be doing really great? It's like, okay, maybe, maybe in that one area. But what about all the people who didn't follow that exact path? All the people who have some alternative form of education or something like that, or somebody who just moves across state lines. Um, I, I think people forget that when regulating and they just treat it as like this cute little thing rather than this is going to harm people no matter what. Is it worth the harm? Yeah. I mean, if we had a if we had a remnant podcast bingo card, one of the phrases that would be on it would be complexity is a subsidy. Oh, yeah. Right. And this whole idea that um, the more complicated you make society, the more rules and hurdles and uh and pieces of paper that you require from people to be able to do what they want to do, the more you're rewarding people with higher levels of financial, social, or cognitive capital. And, you know, a, um, you know, a rich person, a rich person's son or daughter can always hire lawyers and experts and consultants to get them what they need. But, a poor person's son or daughter can't do that in the same way. And so the more regulation that you put out there, the more barriers to entry you put for people who are locked out. And, um, and 
And so that's one of the reasons why it's particularly galling to me, really kind of cruel, for these things that are at the bottom of the the economy. Things, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but like it's like hair braiding, right? I mean, yeah, no one becomes a billionaire hair braiding. No one figures out. No one has this great play on Wall Street hair braiding, but it's something that you can teach your kids that you can learn how to do that your reputation is just is more important than the license um because how many times do you screw that up in your neighborhood before people say don't go to that that chick she's not going to let you braid your hair you don't want her braiding your hair and you know the 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 most important thing in economics for sort of helping people at the bottom at the bottom rungs of the ladder is to get them on the first rungs you know i knew a guy who right um, always used to say, if if he knew any if anybody who he used to own these uh, like cinema draft houses in Florida, and he'd say, look, if you worked at McDonald's for a year, I would totally hire you because McDonald's teaches you all of the basics of discipline: show up on time, clean surfaces, be polite, all of these things that are difficult to teach people, and particularly young people, and the best way you start it's the best way you start in a profession is by starting something you know by getting in the economy and getting addicted to work and all of the rest and when you put barriers to entry at the bottom of the ladder it's so immoral putting barriers to entry at the very top of the ladder you know where like you have to do 6 years of medical school to get this degree um i'm open to the idea that there are examples of it being immoral at points but it's not immoral in the same way you know, I mean, if you yeah. have access to the resources that let you get through four years of college and four years of grad school, you're going to figure out how to get over that hurdle. But if you're at the bottom of the ladder, it's grotesque. You know, it's a way to keep people in serfdom. Um, and it's really problematic. Um, I'm sorry I'm filibustering here. It's just. Um, no, I, I agree with you. Um, what we, I didn't expect that we wouldn't be in violent agreement about a lot of these things. Um so uh, why don't we talk for just two seconds before we get off of occupational li- licensing, licensure, unless you have burning things to add. Um, I know that you are basically, and I, I hope I'm using this terminology correctly for the youngs, uh, that you are a Governor Ducey stan. Yeah, he's the greatest. I love him so much. Um, and so I'm assuming he's going to be in your top two or three or one but what are the states that are doing the best on reforming this stuff and which ones are doing the worst? Ducey's really made Arizona great with uh, licensing reform. He's really taken it and run with it. Um, whenever he and I talk, it's just he realizes all the things we're talking about here. He realizes that people are harmed by it. And um, the way we actually became close is that a couple of years ago, a guy was cutting hair for the homeless and Governor Ducey had to step in because the cosmetology board um, cracked down on the guy cutting hair for the homeless. He was even in cosmetology school and his, um, I think his mom had cancer. So the hair thing was a really close connection for him generally and he wanted to give back to society. So Governor Ducey had to step in and yell at the head of the cosmetology board saying like, what the heck? This guy's doing all the right things. Why are we cracking down on him? Um, so Ducey's looking for every opportunity just to help. Um, he he made Arizona the first state to make it easy for people to transfer in their licenses. Um, it's not perfect, but it's very it's it's a really great bill, and it, it's far better that Arizona had it um, than not. But um, there's still a lot to do. But he's been doing everything right. Um, for other states, it's hard to pick a second because there's been a lot of movement all over. 
Um, there's some movement in unexpected places like Pennsylvania was a close second um, on the reciprocity bill. Um, they enacted something similar, not as good, but, you know, still similar, uh, the same sentiment. Um, Governor Polis in Colorado really likes licensing reform. He just has an affinity for it. Um, he also likes a lot of our streets work. Um, so he, he ends up kind of following some of that. Um, and Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has been doing really great work there, too, really pushing the deregulation, a lot of licensing reform. Um, and I'm glad that they have him as governor there because he recently signed a bill expanding nurse scope of practice, which is extremely helpful now to reduce doctor burnout during coronavirus. So I'd say those are a couple of states to look at. But there, there's I mean, it, it's happening all over. So in most states you can find even California, you can find an example or two of this stuff happening. So are there are there weird cross, you know, like how on things like charter schools and school choice, there are these weird uh, unconventional coalitions where like um, African-American middle class women in Florida are very much on the sort of on the issue of school choice, really on the Republican side. Um, are there places in the country where you get these odd bedfellow coalitions on the issue? Oh, totally, because it's divided less by partisanship than by guild versus not guild. Um, so one of my favorite examples, it was unfortunately a, um, a Republican legislator in Oklahoma who wanted to uh, legislate um, qigong, which is the ancient Chinese art of like energy work. My mom's a hippie. She practices that among many other hippie things. So I knew instantly what that was. And um I would, and so this is an ancient Chinese art that exists legitimately in thousands of forms if you're into it. Like, it's not something a regulator can be like, oh, you're doing Qigong wrong. Like, that's not <laughs> how it works. Um, so even the Qigong practi practitioners locally were furious. So when they saw me write about it, they reached out. They're like, thank you for siding with us. We really appreciate it. So I didn't ever think my mom's hippie work would ever come into mind. But um, I think Qigong practitioners versus uh, state legislator was probably close to the top of weird coalitions. <laughs> and, and, and in Oklahoma, right? That's Right, I mean, right. Yeah, Oklahoma I mean, Qigong practitioners. A, a, I mean, we all know that that Tulsa is a is just a hotbed of Qigong activity right now. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, who would have guessed that? Um all right, so you know, you know, like you know, sort of staying on this point about how you know create, you know, lowering the 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 barriers to entry at the at the bottom of the ladder um, is more important than uh, you know at the top. There's also a, there's there's an analogous thing when it comes to sort of access to capital, and uh, that's why I want to talk to you about Ernest. So. Um, <laughs> So, you know, on these ads, we get these uh, different suggested ways to, like, start the thing. They're called intro ideas or prompts. And um, given that we just uh, passed this massive financial relief thing, um, I could go with the one that begins a, a little financial relief goes a long way. But I think uh, actually starting with this one, it makes even more sense. Life can be unpredictable, but you don't want that to affect your bank account. Whether you want to lower your monthly expenses or pay off debt sooner, Earnest Student Loan Refinancing has a solution for you. If you are still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are 
you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you have refinanced before, with today's low rate environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, just complete a few questions online. It takes only about two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate, all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify, Earnest offers customizable loan terms and no fees. You can even combine private and federal loans. Imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate. Already refinanced a loan? No problem. You can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again. Plus, the internet loves Earnest's customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot, so you'll always get the support you need. So, start saving today. Our listeners get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash dingo. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so let's switch gears now. Like like so many 20-somethings, your passion is for occupational licensing reform. Right. But uh, you also have this this outsized role on the interwebs, um, specifically on Twitter. I mean, I, I don't know what hijinks you're getting up to on Instagram and these kinds of places. <laughs> I'm not there. Um, but, uh, and for a while, you were actually at the uh, dearly departed Weekly Standard as a social media person, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, how did you get into all of this stuff and, and, and why? <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, again, I, everything I do has a really weird story behind it. Um, long story short, when I was 19, um, I managed communications for a guy running for Congress in New York. Um, I did it from GW while I was at college and then went home to work on it. Um, and I hated comms. Uh, Nassau County, New York is like super corrupt, like extremely corrupt. And that means that, um, we had reporters who demanded bribes and one, we didn't even have money if like we could have bribed them. And two, like that we weren't going to do that. So uh, they would write hit pieces on my candidate who is like the sweetest, nicest guy you'll ever meet. Um, and I hated it. I hated all parts of communications. We we got some good stuff published, but I hated it. But I loved social media. I love figuring out new ways to reach the people we wanted to. Um, we had like no resources. So I had to figure out, okay, he has lots of friends in Washington, DC. They're not on Twitter. They're not on Facebook, but they're on LinkedIn. So I created a LinkedIn group to keep them all updated. They gave us donations because of it, because we were always on their mind, but not posting too much that it was annoying them. And I liked the challenge. I liked figuring out how do I do this stuff when I'm bootstrapped? How does this all work out? Um, so I knew I wanted to do digital media. I actually didn't realize I wanted to do policy too, um, even though I spent like literally all of my college years going to think tank events, not for the food, but for fun, just to like hang out and listen and meet scholars as one does. Um, but I, I really like digital media and just figuring out the challenge of how to promote the ideas and the things that I wanted to promote. So um, I've worked at places like America Rising Pack and then the Weekly Standard. Um, I remember the first time I'd met Bill Crystal and I was so nervous and I all I said was like, sorry, and walked away. That was also like within a day or two of meeting you. And I remember when you talked to me, I was like, 
my gosh, Jonah Goldberg's talking to me. And I was very happy. Um, but I wanted to promote ideas like yours and like Bill's. Um, and I learned how to do that in a lot of different ways by just trying out new stuff. Um, at America Rising, we created the first political Giphy account. And Giphy's like just what it sounds like, a platform for GIFs. Uh-huh. Um, well, you we pronounced that had... correctly, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> we had... Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm very hard on the the GIF side of the GIF debate. It's not GIF. It, it's GIF. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah, people, yeah. It's very important. People who mispronounce it should have, in biblical fashion, like a hot poker put out on their tongue. Oh, but, I like that idea. Yeah. I'd be open to taking that law. Uh-huh. But um, on Giphy, we created um, all these GIFs from tracking footage of candidates. Just not nothing even nefarious. Just them being kind of weird. We had this one, I think, South Dakota Senate candidate who was just kind of like a bro. So I had all these gifts of him doing bro things. And BuzzFeed would use our gifts and they all had our logo on them. So um, we got millions and millions of views of our brand just from that. And um, even to today, you can look, I, I've um, I've seen the, the page and you can look and see that it's getting all these views. So I love figuring out like, okay, this is one way to build brand awareness, but how do I reach other people? So I just, I enjoy the challenge of messaging online on figuring out how to talk to different people. Um, and it, it's genuinely fun for me, but my own brand has kind of, or like to, to be the worst millennial, my own brand, like I'm mm-hmm. saying it like it's a thing. Um, it's just developed when I stopped caring what people thought of me when I was never a Trumper. I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't going to make me any friends. So I guess I like no one cares. So I started swearing more and just posting dumb stuff. And people love it. Like I have elected officials messaging me like that was good. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Like, so I, I dyed my hair rainbow. Bill Crystal let me. I asked him just to make sure that like I wouldn't be fired for having rainbow hair. He was cool with it. Um, but I've had a lot of good mentors along the way who taught me different lessons about messaging, about um, how to think, and it served me well online. Never thought I would be where I am, like managing digital media for a think tank and also being a scholar when I feel like it. But And it's been a really weird path, but I really, really enjoyed it. So uh, I have a few questions. Um, first of all, so was it Bill Crystal who taught you to shout Richard in all caps on Twitter all the time? No, um, that was an invention of my own, borrowed for 14-year-old boys. Because you know what? Everyone uh, acts like it's so juvenile. And it is, but it's funny, too. So I just started doing it. And every now and then, people just will reply. Richard. And it's just funny, you know? Yeah. I always, because I want to chastise you, I always give you the benefit of the doubt and figure that you forgot to hit the space bar and we're start about to write, pen is mightier than the sword. But... um because uh, pen is my yeah. yeah. Well, you ought to know better though, because I'm a millennial, so I like never use pens. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, and also I, I want to go back to this because this is intriguing to me in this time of where everybody is cash strapped. H- how do journalists go about asking for bribes? Oh yeah, so um, I mean, it's honestly common in certain places with like machine politics Uh Um, for anyone who's worked in like state or local or even national politics. But on that level, um, I remember one place said, "Um, well, maybe we'll run a story on you if you place an ad with us. And we had to explain like we literally have no money. And we didn't say this, but even if we did, we're not going to like bribe you to write stories about us. Um, and they. Wrote- okay, so, but, but I, just, I just want to be clear about this because I mean, there are, I know I know about those kinds of stories. Uh, John Solomon got caught up in something like that fairly recently. Uh, 
I was kind of hoping that you were saying that there were reporters who like straight up asked for an envelope of cash for themselves, not for their Oh, no, their it, it was always for the organization rather uh, than themselves. It was always bad. like an editor doing it. Um, Newsday never did that to us. They've always been very on the level. Um, but a lot of the smaller papers did stuff like that. And it was it was very clear that if we did not pay them, we wouldn't get a positive story and would more likely get a hit piece. Um, there was even this one very young, I think she was in college and I was in college. So I, I was excited. You know, we're both young professionals. We're figuring stuff out. She had this great conversation with my candidate. I sat and listened. He did everything right. And then she wrote this wild hit piece on him. And I was just like, what the hell? Like, this is bullshit. I'm so mad. And like, I, I remember th at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I can't do comms. This sucks. Um, it's a lot better on the national level, yeah. but um, I still have a bit of a bad taste in my mouth from that. Um, yeah, cause I, so I know someone, an uh, old friend of mine who owned bars in DC back when you were um, non-existent. And, um, and she would tell me about how the DC... Uh, either liquor control people or health inspector types would ask for bribes. And I just always thought it was fascinating. And like one guy who after, you know, checking out the kitchen and filling out his check, his clipboard with all this stuff, he said something along the lines of, you know, what's really interesting is like, sometimes when I go to these places doing these inspections, when I come back from the kitchen, there's like an envelope full of money on the counter. I mean, it's just really fascinating. And I love the idea of a journalist sort of, I mean, I think they should lose their job and it would be a terrible thing, but I just think it's a very funny image of like Peter Baker from the New York Times saying, so, you know, if perchance, if I gave you my coat to hang up in the coat check room and when I came back to get it after our interview, there was a manila envelope full of $50 bills in there. Uh, you know, who knows? That might put me in the kind of mood to make me write a much more positive story. I, 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 it, it kind of, I'm a romantic about like that kind of thing. I just, it, it, and so I was kind of excited to find out that that existed, but I guess not. I'm sure it kind of does some places, but um, anyway. Um, okay. Can you explain the hot dog? Um. So the hot dog is all that is good and pure in the world. Uh -huh. um, this is a hot dog years. that appears on Twitter all the time. That yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. It's from Snapchat. It's uh, It was the first dancing figure that um, that you could put in 3D, like with the Pokemon Go thing, same idea. It was supposed to put the hot dog wherever you put your camera. Um, and I thought it was dumb. I'm like, what What the hell is this hot dog doing here? This bullshit. I didn't I didn't get it. But um but then I I learned that the 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 reason they did it was to monetize Snapchat. And I'm like, "What? Like this is their monetization plan?" So there's all these really great memes online of the hot dog, but among my favorite is one that's like Snapchat investors in a boardroom and they're like, "Okay, how are we going to monetize?" And then you just have the hot dog. <laughs> so I've just like fallen in love with him. Like, I can't get a tattoo because I'm Jewish and I'm fairly religious. So instead, in temporary tattoo ink, I draw the Snapchat hot dog on my wrist like once a week. Um, it usually holds for about that long, but it just makes me so happy. And like, then it's become self-perpetuating. I got Senator Orrin Hatch into it. So his people would always put the hot dog around him. Uh, Romney's people have promised me that they would do the same and have yet to deliver. So we'll see how that goes. But um, the hot dog is just magical. I like putting it places and just like, 
It just makes me happy. This little dumb hot dog was their monetization plan. And um, and then, and the the sloth thing is less of a mystery to me. Uh, but so pe- just so people know, because you're going to get a lot of new Twitter followers out of this, and <laughs> so we're 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 running through the sort of the visual glossary of your feed a little bit, so that people will understand what they're seeing. You just like <laughs> sloths, right? I mean, that's just. Kind of. Um, I was first introduced to them in high school, but it was just a drawing and I didn't really understand the point of the sloth. And I used to think they were kind of weird looking until um, I came across a gif of a sloth handing a lady hibiscus flowers. And you have to know that for sloths, those flowers are like chocolate. So he was like giving the lady chocolate with these earnest eyes. And I just like fell in love. And then I decided they are magical and perfect. Um. One of my great regrets is, and has nothing to do with man-made climate change, um, but like the last transition Ice Age thing, we lost a lot of really cool um, charismatic megafauna, including the giant six-foot giant sloths that were like the size of trees and stuff. And I just think it would be a much more interesting world if we still had them going around. Um, I have... um, I have no I mean, let me put it this way. I think sloths are better than koalas. Koalas Why? get well koalas get this enormously good press because they yeah. are legitimately cute and they are, you know, our brains are wired um to like to our our understanding of cuteness involves uh this head to body ratio thing. And the more you look like a baby, the cuter we think you are. And like, so abnormally large eyes register as attractive to us in a way that um, uh, sort of tricks our lizard brain. Um, This is why if you look at the ratio of eyes and head size on a lot of TV personalities, like uh, news anchors and stuff, they're really unnatural. Um, Oh, because it's just, our eye just is drawn to that kind of thing. Koalas are sort of, they're like the Dana Perinos of the animal kingdom. They trick our brains into like being visually captivating in a certain way. You know, because Dana's got those like um, just crazy huge um, eyes. And um, I wouldn't say it's a trick. She's legitimately attractive. But it's like it, there's this weird thing about it. And, um, but my understanding is that koalas spit and bite. And they're really a kind of nasty personalities. They also make a really weird noise. If you've seen that video going around, it just like, it, it sounds like gurgling. Like they open their mouth at you and that's what you hear. But meanwhile, sloths are like a squeak. When they, when they make noises at you, it's only a squeak. Like that's their only noise. It's funny you mentioned about the baby thing too, because early drawings of sloths, um, for people who had seen them for the first time, they basically like put a baby face on like a sloth body and they're like, yeah, there's these baby looking things. So maybe that's why I think they're so cute. Maybe, maybe. Um, okay. So, uh, you mentioned, uh, your membership in the tribe. Um, how do you as a, and, and just full disclosure, I have, at least as Jewy a name as you do, <laughs> but I am not nearly as observant as you are. Um, I'm a bad Jew. Um, uh, but so how do you reconcile the, the rainbow hair, the F bombs, the, 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 all of that stuff 
the whole gestalt with fairly observant Judaism. I'm just kind of curious. Where, oh, very where, easily. It, yeah. It's very simple. So there's no actual prohibition in Torah against swearing, none, except for using the Lord's name in vain, which you, you won't see me do. If I do it, it's like G-D. I literally even throw the dash in there or just abbreviate and it's G-D. I, I never even say it. Um, maybe unless I'm really mad occasionally, and I try not to, though. Um, but otherwise, there's no prohibition against swearing, and any you might find are rabbinic laws, which I think, um, so I'm, it's, it's pretty bad. I'm an originalist, so I go back to the original meaning and intent, because it's God's law, so intent matters. So original meaning and intent of Torah. So um, that's always my first thing, and if I need more interpretation, I don't mind consulting rabbinic law, but God said not to add or subtract from his laws. So any rabbinic law that codifies itself as law is itself untorah constitutional so like that's kind of how i handle that and the rainbow hair no prohibition there um i think there's a lot of like oppression that's happened in jewish history that's caused traditions that kind of almost um uh they perpetuate parts of the oppression like needing needing to wear black all the time i mean i i'm a goth so you know i grew up goth and all that so i i like wearing black all the time but rainbow hair there's nothing against that uh -huh. Um, and even the prohibition against long hair, it doesn't, um, I, I don't think it jives with the original meaning. And I, I know where they get it from, but I don't think it quite makes sense. But um, like I keep kosher, but um, there were no kosher symbols in the desert. So instead I look at the ingredients and sometimes I do some Googling to figure out if there was anything not kosher in there. And I'm vegetarian, which makes it a little bit easier, but I'm very thorough and I have a wild reason for everything. But everything I do, I think can reasonably be reconciled with Torah and shown that Torah doesn't prohibit those things. So I think this is fascinating, but I'm always very, very nervous to wade into um, a lot of this stuff. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who had to have his half Torah portion transliterated because I don't read Hebrew. Um, and, um, but I think it's sort of, first of all, I think it's fascinating that you're bringing the anti-guild approach to rabbinic law, um, which I think, and again, I, 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 I want to tread, cautiously counselor on all of this stuff because i'm very easily offended well very. no but i i, I have <laughs> to deal with john Badoritz regularly so i got to be careful <laughs> um uh and i also have the stern gaze of my father looking disapprovingly down at me and all of these things but um one of the things i'm fascinated by and i hope i'm not butchering this is um ethiopian jewish tradition because the the ethiopian jews missed all of that Hasidic kind of uh, Talmudic European Ashkenazi stuff for a bunch of centuries. And so they have their own just as legitimate Jewish tradition, um, but it's not informed by all of that stuff. And I find those arguments and conflicts just fascinating. Um, but I just don't know enough about where the lines are to like have informed positions on any of it. But I just think it's really kind of interesting. I know what you mean. And I enjoy seeing how just different people develop in their religious thought. One nice thing actually about DC is that I've met so many people who have thought really, really deeply about their religions. And even if they've ended up at nothing, they, they, they took a really, really long way to get there. And even if they've changed, it's because they're thinking through it. And I know religion isn't always something that 
is just pure logic, but to think through what makes sense to you. Um, if you feel comfortable in a religion, but want to go to the part of it that makes the most sense to you. Um, I just think that that's one really, really nice benefit of DC. Just lots of people who come from all different backgrounds and have different thought put into their religions and, and how they observe. And I'm fairly unique in how I observe, but, um, but it's funny because it's, it's because of that, people are always curious about like, you know, why I don't use electricity on Shabbat, but I'll leave on the TV or like let my friend Uber me somewhere. And there's always like a long, often complex reason, you know, we're, we make good lawyers and like we know how to find the loopholes and everything. But um, but I, I always enjoy learning about why people um, have come to religion in the way that they have. Yeah, look, this is one of the things I actually love about Judaism. Again, stipulating I'm a bad Jew um, is just the love of argument. Right. I mean, there yeah. was sort of there was a you know, there was a pre-enlightenment enlightenment among Judaism about like using rigorous reason to work your way through problems that like <laughs> Jews kind of had to wait for a lot of the rest of the world to catch up to. And I find that kind of just kind of glorious and, and fascinating. Um, and I know exactly what you so like I went to Road of Sholem Day School in New York City, which is where uh, I think it was the first reformed Jewish day school in the country. And it is where Jewish parents sent their kids to be raised Jewish, but not too Jewish. <laughs> um, and um, uh, and so I actually didn't know. I don't think I knew any yarmulke wearing Jews as close friends until I came to D.C. I mean, like on a regular basis, not like in temple, but like walking around town. You know, one of my oldest friends, literally my oldest friend in Washington is Tevi Troy. Um, who I replaced as a research assistant at AI almost three decades ago. And uh, I think he's become much more observant than he was when I knew him, but he was observant back then. And so if he went out on a Friday night, either me or this guy, Vin Canato, had to carry his wallet for him because he couldn't touch it. <laughs> and he would, we would give him rides places and we would pay for his cabs or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And I find that kind of like... I, it, it's So anyway, I, one of the things I find what I like about your approach or that approach is when you have a certain amount of confidence in your faith, you know where things can bend without breaking. And, you know, when converts come to the faith, come to a faith, it doesn't have to be Judaism, any faith. They don't know where, which laws they're allowed to sort of cheat on and which ones they aren't. So they become very, very rigid. And one of the problems I have with what's happened to, and again, I feel very uncomfortable talking about this, so I'll stop soon, um, with Judaism in America, is that it's, it's in some ways it's analogous to what happened with Islam in the Middle East. Islam used to have much more quirky, weird, heterodox, different paths to Islam, and it got sort of uh, one-size-fits-all, or at least they tried to, um, well, or at least one size fits one quarter because it was there are different strains of Islam that still endure. But in America, you know, you have, um, you know, there used to be a synagogue on Central Park West. Maybe it's still there. Sephardic Jews that every year on Yom Kippur would dress in white tie and tails, not just if black tie, white tie and tails, like formal wear. And I love that quirky weirdness. And there's something about the sort of like the spread of the sort of orthodox view of things that feels very cookie cutter to me. Um, 
But that's just me. Anyway, I'll, I'm done no, talking I, about this. You can talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I fully sympathize. I've actually had a lot of trouble finding Jewish community I can be a part of for a bunch of different reasons. But part of it is because every community thinks you can only observe in the exact way they do and judge people who are more religious or less religious. Um, and, you know, you can disagree about the way one one another observes. And I'm always open for discussion. But there's there's almost like this meanness about it at times. Like, oh, look, you know, I remember my temple back home. Um, and not being so nice to a couple that worked on Shabbat. And they were a really nice couple. We liked them. Like, I don't work on Shabbat, but that's okay. Like, they can. That's their decision. Um, and I think intellectual diversity is good for any group. Um, but in D.C., it's been kind of the same thing, trying to find a group that's open to ideas and discussion or even just people who think differently. And that's been really hard for me, which is why I end up praying at home a lot. But I wish that I didn't have to. I wish I could feel comfortable somewhere and be like, OK, maybe not everyone's the same as me, but that's a good thing. As long as they're cool with me doing my thing, I'm, I'm happy. But I haven't really been able to find that yet. So it, it's interesting to hear you think through it um, because it's something that I've been thinking a lot on, too. Um, well, fortunately, the cor- coronavirus alleviates all guilt for praying alone now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, lastly, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I consider you to be kind of a person from another civilization, um, and I mean that kind of literally, is that – so I grew up in I, – I, I grew up in a world. I'm the I, Gen Xers are the last people who have a really strong memory and understanding of a common culture or something that passed for common culture. We also remember pre-internet America. Uh, I remember pre-computer America. I grew up with typewriters, um, and you are so completely or at least the way you come across on social media more than you know sort of in person you're so completely a product of the post internet post social media universe that um i sometimes feel like i should preface talking to you by saying i come in peace um (laughs) you know or something like that so um you do a lot of not only do you do a lot of online dating or attempts at online dating but you talk about it a lot on social media which i find i don't i don't know if i find it good or bad i honestly don't know that i have a moral judgment on it of any kind it's sort of like what's your moral position on rubber door stops i don't know that i have one it's just <laughs> just it's just different to me um and uh how creepy is it out there i mean i, I just <laughs> I, 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 I just I, I worry about this a little bit for my own daughter. I just the idea of the scuzzy dudes out there that you keep referencing uh, coming at you. It just it, it 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 hurts my heart a little bit. So anyway, like how terrible is that world? Do you mind that world? Is it does it is it much harder because of the Jewish thing? Just a- anywhere you want to go with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty terrible, but I learned to laugh at it and stuff. Um, and that's why I have my hikes to Utah, where I basically am largely offline for a week and I'm just hiking and happy and not online dating because it's terrible. You know, it's I think I don't know. I think that there's a lot of escapism that people can indulge in online. Um, you know, you can use anything as a tool or use it in a bad way. And I think online dating has become the latter. Um, a lot of people are just seeking attention, just like, oh, she likes me. Like, oh, she thought I was cute. So she swiped right. And that's all they want. Um 
other times, like in both online and in person, I've come across married guys, guys with fiancés, and not open relationships, which that's not my thing, but I, I can't blame someone if they're um, if they and their spouse or spouses have decided that that's the way they want to live and are open about it. That that's one thing. But the amount of guys who are not single who have tried to like date me has been pretty like surprising, especially because I also talk about ethics and morals like constantly online and like yeah. legalism and you know. So it there I, I used to be so frustrated and think, what's wrong with me for years? And then I started talking with other women and realized everyone was going through the exact same thing. And I just couldn't believe that this was becoming the norm of like, oh yeah, you have to Google a guy because any guy you meet online might have a um a wife. So uh one time I was talking to my dad about it. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go on a date with this guy. And he's like, Have you looked him up? I did, and he was married, and I called him out on it. And he was like, oh, no, we're getting divorced. It's a whole thing. And I looked at her profile, and they were still happily together as of yesterday, like posting <laughs> pictures. So I'm like, okay, so he's lying. He locked his Facebook after that. And I'm like, not, nah, can't do this. Um, other guys just don't know how to have normal conversations where you ask about one another. Like, yeah. I'll be like, oh, how was your day? And he's like, good. And then I'll be like, okay, so what was good about it? And he'll he'll like give me another two word answer. And then I'm just like, I can't deal with this. Um, I've had guys ghost right before dates um, when they were going to say, oh, we're we're going to go to whatever bar. Instead of sending me that, they would just stop replying to me. Um, I've had guys who I started talking with quite a bit, and it was going really well. And I'd let them know, you know, I, I've dealt with a lot. I would just appreciate if you're straightforward. Like, if you're not into this, that's fine, but let me know. He's like, yeah, of course. And then they'll ghost. Um, mm. And it's just so wild that this is the norm and it's exhausting. But um, after reading about a lot of the trends on it from um, this great book, Datanomics, it's, you know, my language, economics plus dating. I'm like, okay, now this makes sense to me <laughs> now that you put it in that language. And even Aziz Ansari's book, you just learn that it deals with male to female ratios that where uh, women outnumber men, men have the upper hand and that leads to more hookups. But in the um, in the reverse situation, you have marriage happening too quickly in places like San Francisco, for instance, um, where the tech hub is and you have all these guys working and fewer women. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics that play into it. But I just try to, like, have a sense of humor about it, because especially online, when you post a lot of positive things, and I have a lot of great stuff in my life, um, people are like, oh, her life is so perfect. You know, I can never achieve that. I want people to know, no, I have five autoimmune diseases and a terrible <laughs> dating life. Like, and that's okay. Like, you know, these are things that'll happen. And I'll have people sharing stories with me, like, you know, feeling, saying that I feel better knowing that someone else is going through this. So um, whatever negative stuff happens that I'm able to talk about within reason, I try to share, not not in a pity way, but in a like, hey, sometimes stuff is terrible, and that's okay. Maybe we can all kind of figure out why. So I, I, I wouldn't mind doing a whole show about some of this stuff, but um, we got to wrap it soon. But, it, you know, it's it's interesting to me, like, Again, back – oh, you were alive. You were like two. <laughs> um, uh, back in the late 90s, um, uh, fax machines were a big part of my life. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, fax machines was – fax machines were a big deal. It's funny. The technology, if you watch the movie Almost Famous, they show that they had fax machine technology in like the 70s. But there was something about the mid-90s – that all of a sudden, I remember Michael Kinsley wrote a really good column about this. He said, there was this point in the mid-1990s where you stopped asking, do you have a fax number? 
and started asking, what's your fax number? Because everyone just yeah. assumed you had one, right? And then the same thing happened in the early two, early 2000s, late 90s with email. It was like, it, at first it was, do you have an email address? And then it became, what's your email address? Because everyone would have one. And, but it was my dad who pointed out to me, he said, you know, and I, I used to get in big fights with libertarians about this. This used to be a big thing. There was a whole, uh, I, one day we'll have drinks and I'll, I'll tell you the wars over the QWERTY keyboard. And uh, <laughs> it was a huge fight on the libertarian and conservative right about whether or not the QWERTY keyboard actually proves that all technological progress, uh, that all technological change equals progress. But that's the subject for another day. Um, my dad pointed out to me that faxing was actually vastly less efficient because what happened was um, you he would have employees. And then as I became a more senior television producer, I realized I would have employees who, rather than making a phone call and actually getting an answer to something, would instead fax a letter. And then when your boss, or in that case, sometimes me, would come in and say, so did you get an answer from so-and-so? You say, well, I faxed them. I haven't heard back yet. And it allowed you not to actually have a more direct and efficient uh, um, mode of communication, which was getting on the phone and calling someone. And email has made that even worse, right? Yeah. It's like, um, uh, you know, you're not supposed to call someone. And now with texting too, it is... And I feel it myself. It is a weird thing for someone to call me without first texting me to see if it's okay. Um, and you feel like it's an imposition when someone calls you. But I really feel like your generation, because you grew up with this more advanced but less human and efficient form of technology, are actually less versed at communication when it used to be that like the way you – went out on a date was either you met someone through work or school or whatever and had a conversation so you, and you had to have a conversation or it was a word of mouth thing where a mutual friend said this person be good for you let's meet you go out in a big group and all that kind of stuff and now because of the the forced anonymity or animatization of or alienation that comes with doing everything by text and and app and all of the rest it's sort of a it's a it's a, the technological corollary to a lot of the Jonathan Haidt stuff about f yeah this generation being sort of the coddling of the American mind and the fragility of it. Like asking, I see this with my daughter's friends. I see it with her. You know, asking them to just go up and physically talk to somebody is a much bigger ask than it was when I was her age because that was how human beings imparted words and concepts was by physically talking to people. And you guys grew up in a world where that wasn't necessarily the case. No, it's it's totally true. And um, I think it really does. You can make the best of it and you can kind of overcome it. Use text to go into person and, and make either dates happen or just, you know, friends happen. Um, some of my best friends I met on Twitter, oddly enough. Um, and it's, you know, we, we realized we had a lot in common and we became really good friends. Um, but meanwhile, one really good example is um, out of a, a, a bunch of the guys who have ghosted me actually have then within a year or two rematched me on the same app 
and said, hey, would you like to go out sometimes? And I'm like, you literally ghosted me. Do you not remember like the human being that you did this to? And they'll eventually be like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. And they're like, well, in my defense. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you don't (laughs) you can say you're not interested. That's fine. But stop with the my defense. Um, The worst guy this happened with took me on the worst date of my life uh, to the cafeteria at La Enfant Plaza. Um, I didn't realize that. Um, I thought we were going to a coffee shop. Turns out it was the cafeteria for coffee, except he got himself a little plastic cup of water, did not bring me a little plastic cup of water. He like grilled me for 16 minutes. I later found out he lied about his age by 10 years. He was a young looking guy, so you wouldn't have known, but I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and then two years later, matches me again on the app. I rip him a new one. He's like, so when do you want to go out? He clearly didn't read my message. So I send another profanity laden one ripping him apart, at which point he unmatched me. But um, you have this impersonal thing where it's just, you know, people are just a commodity. It's like swiping on products like, oh, do I want this one? Maybe I'll save that for later. Oh, I know I bought that one once already, but I think I need a new one. You know, people treat it like that, but they don't have to because some people do meet on apps and they're like, oh, we have a lot in common. Let's go out like a normal person. But instead, you have these texting conversations forever where everyone still has to be coy. And it's like, oh, does she like me? And it's it's idiotic. Um, so instead, I just sometimes tweet about the really funny stories. I did get an offer recently to write about all this for um, a very high uh, publication I decided against that because I don't want to not be able to ever date again. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did appreciate the offer. Just I, I'm okay talking about it, not just having it like in the front page of a big publication. That's a little much for me. Yeah, I'm. I can't tell you how delighted I'm not part of any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> and and sometimes when you say these things, like I, I mean, I I know what ghosted means, but in all that kind of stuff. But when you talk about all the swiping and whatnot, um, it, it's like you're descri- describing this weird civilization that you come from that is, yeah. you know, it was like, and then of course we use blood magic to make them <laughs> levitate because that's what we do in my land. Um, it's just not my thing. I don't like it. Um, it makes me fear for my daughter. Um you know, and it was, I think it was Michael Novak who said, you know, the famous definition of a neoconservative before it became bagel snarfing Jew uh, or bagel snarfing warmonger was um, <laughs> uh, uh, a neoconservative was a liberal who was mugged by reality. That was Irving Crystal's famous oh, line yeah. for it. But uh, I always liked Michael Novak, um, uh, who always said, um, a neoconservative, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. He says, I think it was. A neoconservative is a liberal who has three teenage daughters, oh, and that's right. um, I only have one teenage daughter, but it's it works. It's like a necessary but insufficient number. So, somewhat I wanted to ask you about SpongeBob, but I, having had Jack Butler as my amanuensis for so long, um, and my daughter's own attachment to SpongeBob, my understanding is that that is just simply the cultural touchstone of your generation, right? Is there is there more to it than that? I mean, they're big licensing reformers. There's so many like references to occupational licensing being ridiculous. Um, actually, In on Jack's podcast, yeah, oh yeah, they have a milkshake license, a crop circle license. They have all these licenses referenced, and the dynamic is so in line with like 
Institute for Justice's work. Like I know someone in there has been following IJ or the movement for a really long time. And it, it just delights That's me. fascinating. I'm, now I'm glad I asked. All right. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I would tell you to clean up your room, but that's all Tom Nichols bag about being your fake internet father. Um, you should at some point like post a how to follow me on Twitter, like glossary. Um, for people to reference because if they come in the middle of the movie it's very complicated Uh, and it takes a while to get the um, semiotics of Senator Shoshana Um, but thanks so much for coming on it's been a long time in coming and we'll hope to have you back again thanks for having me you're literally one of my like top intellectual heroes so it's as as Joe Biden would say a BFD for me Uh, (laughs) makes me very I, I, my standard line about this kind of thing is I come from a long line of Jews who think all compliments are bad luck, but thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. So, uh, uh, Shoshana has left the conversation. Um, I, I apologize if you heard some dog barking in the background, that was Zoe. Um, I'm assuming that she was, uh, once again, scaring away all of the lions around here. And, um, you can't prove that she hasn't because, it's non-falsifiable, and there have been no lion sightings since I got Zoe in my neighborhood. Um, uh, I wonder what people are going to make of the Shoshana thing. Um, I think one of the reasons why I sound so weird and don't know how I'm talking is I have to wear these over-the-ear headphones for this. So I hear I don't hear my own voice like I normally would, and I feel like I'm shouting at strangers on the bus. Um, and it, it interrupts my thought processes quite a bit. Um uh, we got a lot of, you know, we've had some great feedback for, you know, uh, podcasting in the age of the plague. We had um, uh, the Chris Steyerwalt thing was hugely popular. Um, the Kevin Williamson thing, I knew it was going to be popular because he's got all these cult-like followers. And and if you hadn't noticed, Kevin and I are in a kind of a mutual admiration society with each other. Um, but we'll be curious, we'll be curious to see what people think of, of you know, this foray into occupational licensing reform and the uh, observant Jewish online dating scene, um, which is going to be exciting for some people who had like weird bets in the remnant pool about concepts that were going to be coming up. Um, So don't know who we're going to have next week, but I I know who one of them is going to be, but I'm going to keep that a secret. It's pretty exciting. Um, And we are going to try over at Glop, uh, the pop culture, the 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 pop culturey kind of podcast that I do with John Pedoritz and Rob Long. We're going to try and do a, a happy hour uh, Saturday night um, uh, special cocktails allowed podcast and Zoom video conference thing. And one of the reasons why I agreed to do it was we're going to be able to give paid members of the dispatch community an access code so they can tune into the video. They'll still be able to hear the podcast later, but they won't be able to see it um, on the video conference unless they have the code, or at least that's what we're working out. Um, check to, check Friday's G file for details in case this doesn't actually happen or um, I've gotten this slightly wrong. And... Um, other than that, we got some great stuff up at the dispatch. We're finally getting the kind of content stream coming in that we were hoping for all along. We have some great stuff up today. 
Um, I got a big thing about political movies up tomorrow, um, I hope. Um, Nicholas is nodding at me on this, this doicky, so apparently that's the case. And um, other than that, I'll just see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>